Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Earn extra money online, get paid $30 per hour for easy tasks. When the pandemic hit, all my freelance work was cancelled or delayed. Like many, I was facing months without any income and it was such a shock. I got by for a few months and exhausted my savings while being super frugal, not that there was much to do in lockdown. Then I found out about the concept of beer money, which you can earn on websites from cashback, surveys, and doing quick tasks. My first thought was of the fake gurus saying you can make millions online with easy tricks and hacks, this is not that. I found actual people on forums online making a good couple of hundred bucks a month from their beer money earnings. Thinking it was too good to be true, I signed up for a few sites using people's referral links, most of them gave me some kind of sign-up bonus, e.g. £10 Amazon voucher. To be honest, a lot of the sites were a waste of time. But some made me some decent money, in a couple of months of dedicating a few hours a day to these sites I was making $750 minus $1,000 a month. Your earnings will depend on the current offers, how much time you spend on each site, and also a degree of luck. Let's be clear, making money can be difficult. It's hard to find a steady job, and freelance work takes more time to build up than people think. If you're looking for ways to make money online, but don't want to freelance or start your own side hustle business, there are tons of other options. Here are some real ways that anyone can earn some extra cash without doing anything too risky or time-consuming. Before we start, I want to make it clear that none of the these are going to make you a millionaire overnight, or at all, like ever. But if you are like me, and found yourself out of work because of the pandemic, then some of these sites can be an absolute lifesaver and at least help pay for your gas or groceries. Surveys Honestly, I have done the hard work for you with surveys. I have tried multiple sites over the past few years, and most of them are incredibly frustrating and you are lucky to come away with any money at all. The issues include, high withdrawal fees, disqualifying you from surveys halfway through, lower than expected pay etc. The point is, just use Prolific. It's the only survey site I have found that has a great balance of interesting studies, good pay, and a low minimum withdrawal of $5. For things you purchase anyway, cashback is great. But that's not what I am talking about here, I am talking about free cashback. Sites like OhMyDash will pay you for signing up for a free trial or ordering freebies from websites, just set a reminder in your calendar to cancel the trial before it's over. A lot of the tasks on cashback sites can be really easy and quick, although you might have to pay a few bucks up front and then receive much more back in time, but it's a nice one to forget about and then see money in your account a couple of weeks later. User testing this is probably my favorite of the bunch. Websites that pay you to record yourself testing apps or websites, and they ask you questions about your experience. 
I like user testing, and should really use it more. Tests there pay $10 for every 20-minute test. If you are into web design, you will probably find it quite interesting too. To round things up here's a few things I would recommend to help you maximize your earnings. Download the browser extension for each app, website, it will make your life a lot easier and make sure you are one of the first to get new tasks and offers you don't have to do every offer on these sites, so don't feel forced to do low-paying ones you think are not worth it, sometimes they just aren't I will reiterate, don't expect to become a millionaire from any of these sites. Happy earning. Smoking hot, Kazakh bodybuilder who married a sex doll has fallen in love with an ashtray, wants to add fake vagina to it. Savage Kazakh bodybuilder who hit the headlines for marrying his sex doll has fallen in love with a large ashtray he saw in a club, lauding its brutal scent and the touch of metal on my skin. Yuri Toliko wants to add a fake vagina to a hole in the black receptacle, which he swooned for during a photoshoot little more than nine months after marrying a sex doll in a touching ceremony. The hulking pansexual 36-year-old has filmed himself sniffing and cradling the ashtray, although the half-naked beefcake explained that he could not show all of its contents and his caresses, because of rules imposed by Instagram. This is a big ashtray in a smoking room in a club, explained the randy lover of sex dolls Lola and Luna. At first, I just arranged a photoshoot with it. But then it began to attract me. I wanted to touch it again, smell it. I love its brutal scent, the touch of metal on my skin. It's really brutal. I also like that it has a story, that it's not new, that it has served many people and continues to serve them. Tolichkin, who variously describes himself as a savage, muscleman, and athlete, who is hotter than hell, says he has persuaded the owners of the ashtray to let him explore the relationship privately. A couple of days ago, I was allowed to be alone with it during it off hours, he revealed. I really liked it. I want to ask them to give it to me sometimes at night. It will look great in my harem, my babies will be happy. Lola and Luna will support it. However, I don't want to buy a new an ashtray or that they give it to me forever. I want it to continue to work, to benefit people. I love this story. I can also insert an artificial vagina in the tube into the hole. What do you think about it? And how will they let me be its boyfriend? His ashtray romance is not the only thrill Tolichkin has shown off recently to his vast following of more than 108,000 on the social media platform, many of whom will be looking forward to updates on his latest burning desire. After relaxing in a park after a paintball session in a tiny pair of blue pants on Tuesday, Tolichkin shared a clip from a club on Wednesday in which sex doll Luna was part of his saucy act for the first time. Luna has earned her first money, he reported in footage that showed Tolichkin sidling up to the horizontal doll and removing a sheet from atop the flame-haired, stiletto-wearing mannequin.
Alas, the proponent of surreal sexuality again had to tell viewers that the footage had been cut short due to censorship, directing fans to his Telegram channel to witness the full performance. Tolichkin issued a call to arms to his followers alongside his first photoshoot with the ashtray last month, when he placed the object between his open legs while topless. I want to reach out to people who consider themselves beautiful, he said, writing after a fan told him they were sad about the prospect of being perceived as ugly. Please do not offend other people, do not tell them that they are fat, ugly. You have no idea how much it hurts them. Don't just do this because you are lucky to be beautiful. You're just in luck, appreciate it. I also want to tell people who consider themselves ugly, believe in yourself. Very often you are very nice, sincere and it is good to be with you. In fact, you are also beautiful, just once for some reason you decided otherwise. F asterisk CK all the beauty templates. I'll tell you that as a child I was often teased, people laughed at me. I was a pretty boy but I didn't know it. Nobody told me this and I didn't believe in it. As I grew older, I began to hear more often that I was handsome. But I still didn't believe in it for a long time. However, over time, I believed it, and you can believe. Know that your inner beauty is important to me. Taliban, night letters, warn those who helped West, surrender or die. The Taliban are pinning chilling night letters to the doors of those they accuse of working for the Crusaders. The notes order their victims to attend a Taliban-convened court. Failure to do so will result in the death penalty. One of those to receive a warning was Naz, a 34-year-old father of six whose construction company helped the UK military build roads in Helmand and the runway at Camp Bastion. He had applied for sanctuary in Britain under ARAP, the Afghan relocation program, but had been rejected. Nas said yesterday, the letter was official and stamped by the Taliban. It is a clear message that they want to kill me. If I attend the court, I will be punished with my life. If I don't, they will kill me, that is why I am in hiding, trying to find a way to escape but I need help. Another victim, a former British military translator, was warned he was a spy of the infidel and must give himself up or pay with his life. A third night letter warned the brother of an interpreter that he had been sentenced to death for sheltering him while a fourth was found in the shoe of an ex-British military translator as he left prayers at a mosque. The letters are a traditional Afghan method of intimidation. They were used by Mujahideen fighters during the Soviet occupation and then by the Taliban as both a propaganda tool and a threat. Often used in rural communities, they are now being widely circulated in cities. Those received by former British translators are designed to both spread fear and compliance with Taliban directives with threats of violence or death if demands are not met. As in Naz's case, that usually involves an interpreter surrendering to a Taliban court. Sher, 47, worked on the front lines in Helmand and qualified for relocation.
but he was unable to force his way through the airport to board an evacuation flight. He said, My daughter found the letter on our door with a nail in it. It instructed me to surrender myself for the judgment of the Court of the Islamic Emirate Taliban, or they would act like hunters to find me. They would then kill me. He immediately moved home and is now in hiding. It is a letter of fear, a warning, a threat to you and your family. You must bow to the Taliban orders or make sure you are not caught. I thought I would escape on a British flight and was called three times to the airport but could not make it through the people. Now I am trapped and people have seen the letter on my door. It is a mark of the Taliban on my family. For Naz, the letter was specific. It named his father and their village and was stamped by the Islamic Emirate. The warning said he had been a slave of NATO forces and had ignored warnings to stop working with them. He was ordered to present yourself to the court otherwise it would be forwarded to the Sharia Court of Appeal where the judgment of death penalty will be passed in your absence. This would be the path you have chosen for yourself. Nas said, the message of night letters is clear, you must comply or die. We have moved but we can't keep moving. We must escape. Schools will need to reintroduce tougher COVID measures in weeks, warn unions. Hundreds of schools will be forced to reintroduce tougher COVID measures within weeks, teaching unions claimed as pupils begin to return to the classroom. With many schools restarting this week after the summer holidays, families have been warned to expect significant disruption to learning by the end of September because of a rise in cases. The country's largest education unions said the removal of many of the mitigations in place in classrooms last year, including bubbles and face masks, will fuel the surge. Some have also expressed concern that head teachers could face significant pressure from anxious parents to reimpose measures should large numbers of pupils test positive. However, the government is insisting that the vaccination program has helped turn the tide and there is a need to balance COVID measures against ensuring schools return to near normality after 18 months of disruption. On Monday night Mary Bousted, the Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, told The Telegraph, we have much higher prevalence now in the community than it was. So we're going in with much higher rates of prevalence into schools where we are relying on one mitigation, which is lateral flow testing. In Scotland, they have not abandoned the safety precautions, they have still maintained social distancing where possible, they are still, in secondary schools, using masks. My prediction is that very shortly we are going to see schools all over the country and their hundreds having to operate contingency frameworks. But what you're doing there is shutting the stable door after the Covid horse has bolted. The majority of schools in England reopen over the next fortnight, with many staging staggered returns from Wednesday. 
In order to reduce COVID outbreaks in classrooms this autumn, the Department for Education DFE, has asked schools to conduct two on-site tests for every pupil at the start of term, with parents then asked to continue swabbing from home. Under the DFA's contingency framework guidance, schools have also been told to consider moving classes and assemblies outdoors and step up cleaning and hygiene measures if five pupils and staff who have mixed closely test positive. However, if further action is advised by local public health teams, schools have been told they could be asked to temporarily reinstate face coverings indoors and, in extreme cases, restrict attendance, although the guidance stresses that must be short-term and at last resort. In an attempt to try and control the spread, a number of head teachers have already imposed tougher infection controls. They include cutting the number of lessons taught per day in order to reduce mixing between staff and pupils and encouraging pupils to wear masks. Concerns are being fueled by the current COVID surge in Scotland, where the earlier return of pupils has coincided with a sharp increase in infections among young people. In England, pupils are heading back to the classroom at a time when virus incidence among young people is almost 5,000% higher than during the same period last year. While 132 people aged 5 to 19 were testing positive each day on average between August 16 and 24 last year, this year the figure currently stands at 6,471. DFE officials acknowledge that another rise in COVID infections is likely, but argue that the high uptake of vaccines will help offset the removal of other mitigations and that the ending of bubbles will mean there is still less disruption. Jeff Barton, head of the Association of School and College Leaders, said, what happened at the end of term was that there were still a lot of mitigations in place, bubbles, face coverings in social areas, social distancing where possible. To move from that to pretty much nothing apart from lateral flow tests during the first six days does need explanation, I think. Echoing his concerns, Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of School Leaders Union NAHT said, the concern is that the government has removed nearly all of the mitigations we had when schools broke up. It could put school leaders in an awkward position with parents who may not understand all the changes the government has mandated. On Monday, a DFE spokesman said, we have provided additional funding to cover exceptional costs such as staffing and cleaning that schools faced during the pandemic, and have invested directly in schemes such as £25 million to provide schools with carbon dioxide monitors to help improve ventilation. Visit misty101.com for great offers, blogs and free delivery. To be truly British, the country needs to stay largely white. Really, Lionel Shriver. They have seen the passing of the American Indian and the Buffalo, and now they query as to how long the Anglo-Saxon may be able to survive. So wrote William Ripley in an essay for the Atlantic Monthly in 1908.
Ripley was one of America's most renowned academics, professor of political economy at Columbia University and of economics at MIT. By the early 20th century, his chief preoccupation had become the fear that white people, which, to the American elite at least, meant Anglo-Saxon, were vanishing from the population. Whereas, until about 20 years ago, our immigrants were drawn from the Anglo-Saxon or Teutonic populations of northwestern Europe, Ripley wrote, they have swarmed over here in rapidly growing proportions since that time from Mediterranean, Slavic, and Oriental sources. He was worried that Anglo-Saxons were showing a low and declining birthrate, while the immigrant horde has continued to reproduce upon our soil with well-sustained energy. For Britain to remain Britain, it has to remain predominantly white. To say so, Lionel Shriver insists, is not racist a century on, such fears of white decline have returned in certain circles. Until recently, issues of white identity and of white decline were confined to the far-right fringes, where notions such as that of the Great Replacement, the belief that white people are being driven out of the homelands, flourished. Increasingly, though, mainstream conservatives, academics, politicians, writers, are taking up the call. The latest comes in an essay by the novelist Lionel Shriver in The Spectator. It's entitled, Would You Want London to Be Overrun with Americans Like Me? But it's not Americans like her that worries Shriver. Her fear, rather, is that white Britons are becoming a minority in the UK. The lineages of white Britons in their homeland commonly go back hundreds of years, she writes, and yet they have to submissively accept the ethnic transformation of the UK, without a peep of protest. For Britain to remain Britain, it has to remain predominantly white. To say so, Shriver insists, is not racist. It is difficult, though, to know what else it could be. For Westerners to passively accept and even abet incursions by foreigners so massive that the native-born are effectively surrendering their territory without a shot fired, Shriver claims, is biologically perverse. This is the language of the British National Party, of the AFD in Germany, of Marine Le Pen in France. To describe immigration as incursions by foreigners, to view black or brown people moving into your town as surrendering one's territory, and to regard non-white immigration as biologically perverse, is not just to stray into racist territory, it is to jump head first into the swamp. There are legitimate arguments to be had about immigration. I am more liberal about immigration than most, but I have long argued that we should not, as many do, dismiss those calling for tighter controls as racist, some are, most probably not. Conservative proponents of tighter controls react with fury at the charge that their arguments may be racist, insisting they are concerned purely about numbers. Increasingly, though, the question of race has become explicit. Shriver's is but the latest in a series of arguments by prominent conservatives bemoaning the decline of the white population or defending the legitimacy of white racial self-interest. 
Many conservatives argue that in their obsession with white decline, they are speaking for working-class white people, whose views have been neglected by the metropolitan elite. Yet nine out of ten Britons disagree with the claim that, to be truly British you have to be white. Two-thirds of Americans think that the declining share of white people in the U.S. population is neither good nor bad. On both sides of the Atlantic, ordinary people seem more rational about whiteness than does Shriver. White declinists are using working-class white people as alibis for their own prejudices. Related, I'm a cricketer, what makes me different? England's black players on racism and exclusion. One of the ironies in all this is that many of those who most worry about white decline are also among the most strident critics of identity politics. Taking part in a debate in defense of the proposition that identity politics is tearing society apart, Shriver argued that she had been a fierce advocate of the U.S. civil rights movement because its goal was to break down the artificial barriers between us, and to release us into seeing each other not as black or white, but as individual people. The color of my skin, she added, is an arbitrary accident. The boxes into which I have been born are confinements I have struggled to get out of and I would wish that liberation to everyone else. Except, it seems, if you are a non-white immigrant. Then, the arbitrary accident of birth becomes an essential feature of one's identity, the artificial barriers between us need to be emphasized, the confinements of ethnic boxes maintained and people seen not as individuals, but as black or white. Such double standards are not peculiar to Shriver. The writer Douglas Murray, for instance, is similarly hostile to identity politics, arguing, skin color is of no significance, which is what I think and I hope society can end up thinking, while also denouncing the fact that white Britons are a minority in their own capital city and asking, were your derided average white voters not correct when they said that they were losing their country? It's a common thread running through much conservative criticism of identity politics. Right-wing critics have never been hostile to identity politics. They just want to push their form of identity politics in truth. Right-wing critics have never been hostile to identity politics. They just want to push their form of identity politics. The critique of identitarianism is, for them, a useful weapon with which to attack the left, while promoting their own insidious notions of identity. Meanwhile, many on the left, who rightly condemn the racism of the white declinists, are themselves drawn to defend their own version of identity politics, not recognizing that in doing so they make it easier to rebrand racism as white identity politics. For both right and left, whiteness has come to acquire an almost magical quality. On the one side, whiteness is something to be protected, something too little of which transforms British communities, and mysteriously makes them less British. On the other, whiteness has become an embodiment of privilege or wickedness and racism seen not in social or structural terms but in the inherent qualities of being white. 
it's an obsession that replaces political argument with magical thinking and gives new legitimacy to bigotry. Racism matters. Whiteness does not. Woman journalist who made history after interviewing Taliban spokesperson flees Afghanistan. The reporter who interviewed a Taliban spokesperson after they seized power this month has fled Afghanistan as questions linger over the future of female journalists in the country. Baheshta Argan of Tolo News, Afghanistan's only international channel, interviewed Taliban spokesperson Maulawi Abdulhaq Hemad on 17 August and grilled him over concerns over women's rights following the Taliban's seizure of power in Kabul and the collapse of Ashraf Ghani's government that week. The interview was broadcast live on the channel and created a stir as Muzargan was the only Afghan female journalist to interview one of the fighters of the group. Two days later, she also interviewed Malala Yousafzai, the activist who survived a Taliban assassination attempt, in what Tolo described as the first time that Muz Yousafzai had ever been interviewed on Afghan TV. However, the 24-year-old journalist has now fled the country, according to CNN, because she felt it was dangerous for her to continue living in Afghanistan. She reportedly left on a Qatari flight on Tuesday with other members of her family. On Sunday, CNN anchor Brian Patrick Stelter featured Muzargan's story on his show Reliable Sources, where he shared what she had to say about leaving the country last week. I left because, like millions of people, I fear the Taliban. Muzargan said that she took the step of posing tough questions to the Taliban because someone had to. It's so difficult but I did it for Afghan women, she was quoted by CNN as saying. I told myself, one of us must start. Taliban has claimed that women can continue working and their rights will be respected as per Islamic Sharia law. However, recent reports coming out of the war-ravaged country have not been encouraging. Muzargan told CNN, if the Taliban do what they said, what they promised, and the situation becomes better, and I know I am safe and there is no threat for me, I will go back to my country and I will work for my country. For my people. Tolo owner Saad Mosani told CNN that most of the independent outlet's well-known reporters have fled over safety concerns. We have the twin challenge of getting people out, because they feel unsafe, and keeping the operation going, Mr. Mosney told CNN. Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.